Hey, it's Phil Simon. My new book is out now. It is called The Nine, The Tectonic Forces Reshaping the Workplace. It's my best work to date, and I hope that you'll check it out. Thanks. What are you still doing with that? I thought you were going to return it. They wouldn't take it back. All I got was some attitude and a cheap glass of wine. Loire Valley, my ass. <laughs> Conversations about collaboration, episode 60. Dr. Laura Georgia joins me today. She is an organizational scholar, speaker, and consultant. We explore the importance of deadlines and clarity, task urgency, accountability, and the notion of pre-mortems. Let's get it on. Laura, where does this pod find you? Hi, Phil. This uh, pod finds me in London, UK. Uh, where it's quite not sunny, sadly, at this point. It's never sunny over there, though, right? It is, actually. I was surprised when I moved here that it does get sunny, and maybe it was just like a false hope that London is more sunny than I expected it to be. But um, the past weeks has not been sunny, sadly. Okay. And what I understand, the COVID rates have really dropped. Yeah, luckily it's getting a little bit better, although I'm, I'm more of a, a risk adverse person. So I'm still avoiding crowds and avoiding going out. Uh, probably going to take a while until I get back to feeling like I can meet a lot more people in person and so forth. But luckily it is going down. So that's a positive. Yeah. Well, let's How, are Go ahead. How are things there? Oh, gosh. Um, maybe better than they used to be, but hospitals are still overfilled and it's um, really disturbing how many people don't take it seriously. Um, I think our vaccination rate is still not, not wonderful. And they're saying that with Omicron, if people get it, then they'll have the antibodies. So hopefully there's um, an end in sight. Yeah, I hear you. I think one of the things that for me feels quite um, stressful going out and um, I know we didn't plan to talk about this, but it's basically seeing people who don't follow the rules. It just gets me so angry. And it's kind of like, don't wear the mask on half of your face, which is not how it's meant to be. Right. It just gets me angrier in a way that you're not respecting my own health and you're not respecting your own health. And yeah, it's just- yeah, you and I, yeah, we could talk for hours about that. It's um, remarkable to me how people will say, well, it's my freedom, but it, what about other people's freedom not to get sick? And when they do get sick and they go to the hospital, there are only so many beds. So yeah, you, I could tell from your body language, you and I are, are on the same page. Um, and speaking of things that make us angry and we're on the same page about, um, I think you and I share a great deal in common when it comes to working together. I initially came across you in a Wall Street Journal article about notifications and this sense of urgency. Um, I'm of the opinion that not everything is urgent and can be urgent and multitasking. I mean, forget what I think. Neuroscientists have proven that it's basically a myth. But um, you have some strong opinions about how we communicate. Uh, talk to me a little bit about the messages that we get. What's wrong with just sending someone a plain message? Hey, can you do this? Yeah, so um, in the Wall Street Journal is actually based on research that I've conducted with Vanessa Bonds from Cornell University. And, and we were just simply looking at do people understand each other when it comes to the sense of urgency and the expectation of uh, when do we expect the response if we're not making that clear? And we find that people on average tend to overestimate 
like a 36% overestimation of how fast they need to respond to a non-urgent emails and outside work hours. And so um, it's basically a, a misunderstanding that exists at a more psychological kind of unintentional level where we, we don't fully understand the other person's expectation, although we think we do, and the other person thinks that we will understand what they mean and they don't have to be explicit about it. And so it's kind of like a miscommunication breakdown that happens. Um, it's unintentional, but it has huge consequences. So I really got into the habit of um, asking for deadlines from people if they don't set one, because it just helps me to put the workload uh, in perspective on my end and prioritize things appropriately and also communicate that urgency because of my research saying that we need to be explicit about implicit expectations. Yeah, a couple of things come to mind when you talked about we may not completely understand the sense of urgency or if something's urgent at all. It reminds me of a study that I read when I wrote my book on communication and I think it was University of Illinois. Uh, my book came out in 2015, so I forget the exact year of the study, but um, they gave people messages and 46% of the time, the recipient could not tell if the sender was using humor because you're stripping out the context right now. You're smiling. Well, I can see that. Well, you can't see that. And yes, you can use emojis, but so half the time they don't understand if someone's being funny because something could be a joke, but you could take it if, especially we don't know each other very well as offensive. In fact, I remember um, I did an interview with um, the keyboardist Mark Kelly of one of my favorite bands, actually based where you are in, in the UK, Marillion. And before we were talking about the band, he said, well, we'll talk about it in a second, but um, tell me about your book. And I explained how we misunderstand each other over email, blah, blah, blah. And he said, it's really interesting because, and this band has been around since the early 80s, but they had a misunderstanding internally um, about whether someone was kidding over email. And then they got the person on Skype. And yeah, what's what's the problem? So if that can happen with people who've known each other for four decades, that certainly can happen with people who've known each other for four days, four weeks, four months. Yeah, I think I I think I, I know that study, or at least it sounds quite familiar. Nicholas something, I think it was. If I anyway, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's it's basically we're being overconfident in our assessment of how well we communicate with with each other, and that error can happen on both sides. And in, in my research on, on uh, the email urgency bias, we argue that the egocentric bias leads us to mistakenly assume that others know how we feel and you know what our intentions are. And so we are also overconfident in our ability to know others' um, feelings and intentions. And as you were talking there, I was thinking about, uh, I'm teaching negotiations and bargaining at London Business School. And one of the things that we talk about in team interactions, for instance, is you need to be aligned internally as a team before you go and negotiate with another team. Um, so you were talking about the internal alignment uh, between two people, kind of reminds me of that. Yeah, and I don't think that people would disagree with you in theory, but in practice, many times we don't do the things that we should do. I can definitely think of some technical solutions, like instead of sending someone a direct message in Slack or posting something in a channel or sending an email, using a proper project management tool like Trello or Asana and actually putting priorities there or putting dates and times due. Um, but I think it's silly to think that tech alone is the solution. Yeah. And as I always like to think about it, like we, we, um, 
I look at technology as a sort of a, a double-edged uh, sword, right? It kind of helps us to be more productive and achieve more and connect with people and, and um, share and request information faster. But at the same time, it can also backfire, such as, you know, we tend to get in this habit of expecting things to go faster. And we start to really focus on this urgency um, of everything being urgent. And we blame technology when things don't go well, instead of looking uh, at ourselves and at our, you know, do we just expect that technology to solve all our problems uh, without really talking about the norms around that technology? And, and I think this is a broader point that you can't just expect that, oh, I'm going to introduce a technological tool that's going to solve the problem of miscommunication in my organization or something like that without talking about how are we going to use that tool and for what are we going to be using it? Um, is it for urgent things or not? How are we going to label things? So yeah, I really, I think technology is one side, but the way we use technology is the other side. hundred percent. And to me, when the organization doesn't exist in training and just says, oh, people can pick it up, they can watch videos. Um, I, tend to think that they don't get the real benefits out of it. So even I completely agree with you, you could go through the best training on Slack or Zoom or Microsoft Teams or, or whatever, people can still misuse it. Um, the, the technology itself doesn't prevent people. When some people say, oh, here's an organization that, that I know Cal Newport actually, uh, whom I know you're familiar with, um, came out mm -hmm. and said, Slack is email 2.0. Uh, <laughs> well, no, it isn't, um, but people tend to use it in this, um, as a cudgel. Right, as opposed to knowing the nuances and using it in an intelligent way, but you know, even Slack, and I'm a big fan, people can misuse. Absolutely, and I think that's one of the points that we focused on email is email was meant to be an asynchronous communication tool that gives us more control over when and how we work. We choose to work outside work hours or, or not, and it just started to be used as an asynchronous communication tool where you send an email and you expect a response right away, but that's not what the email communication tool was meant to be about, right? It was not about urgent things. If it's urgent, you pick up the phone, right, and, and call. But that's kind of a barrier. I've been thinking about this. Like myself, I feel like if I have to pick up the phone and call someone, especially outside work hours, I think twice. But writing an email, I somehow don't think twice because I, I think, oh, the other person will just choose not to respond. But as my recent research shows, um, that's not the case. I need to communicate that this is not urgent if I don't want them to uh, respond right away. I don't know if it was your Wall Street Journal article or newsletter, because I, I tend to read a lot about what's going on in the future of work and the possibilities and the problems. But um, it might have been so, um, but something like in your email or Slack message or whatever, um, you should put, you know, basically, this is not urgent. Respond at your convenience. Was that the article? You're, you're smiling. Yeah. So um, that's actually my favorite study in, in that paper is where we also find a solution to this email urgency bias where, so a, a little bit of a background, but in egocentrism literature, um, one way to um, solve the bias of people is to focus on the bias holder, which in this case would be the receiver 
should be the one to regulate their email behavior. And what we show and argue in the paper is, no, 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 it's, it's the other side that can also help. So the sender needs to communicate their expectations by adding that specific message of saying, this is not an urgent email, so you can respond to it whenever you can. And that helps to align the expectations of the response speed. So yes, that was our paper. I thought about that um, to put in the signature of an email right? By default, right? It's just part of it. This is not urgent respond when it's necessary and then take it out if needed. But I completely agree with you. If it's urgent, you shouldn't be sending an email in the first place. I, I like and dislike that solution because I often think about it as, you know, I've seen a lot of email signatures coming through in the past two years where people have this like, oh, um, these are my working hours, but I don't expect you to have the same working hours or, you know, I respect your time off. Um, you should not respond to my email if it's sent outside your work hours and so forth. And I, I really enjoyed seeing them, the variety of them, but I think they become like a sort of a painting on the wall that the painting becomes the wall, right? Like you're not paying attention to it anymore after you've seen it for a couple of times. And, and I think this practice of getting into the habit of communicating when something is urgent, but also when something is not urgent, I think it just, it, it really gets into the habit of helping us ourselves prioritize things, but also helping the other person prioritize things for themselves. Yeah. Um, My favorite email hack is, and I think I've made this point on previous episodes, a Google engineer I read about maybe 10 years ago who had his out of, out of office response as follows. I'm going out for two weeks. When I come back, I'm deleting all of my email. Um, <laughs> if this is important, send it again at that point. I, I love that because how can you enjoy yourself on vacation if you're getting 150 emails a day and you're out of the office for, forget two weeks, even three days. And then of course they keep coming in. Yeah, that's uh, that's amazing. And and it, it reminds me of um, a different project that I'm I'm currently doing, which I also find this tendency of urgency that we have, right? Like, oh, I have a question, so I'm going to send an email and that person will reply because we got into this habit of sending and responding right away. And it just kind of, it deprives the other person from learning to some extent, I think, because if I reach out to someone and I know they're going to reply with the answer, I'm not going to spend time finding the answer for myself because I know that they will be able to help me. But if the other person doesn't reply right away and I need something that is important to me, I'll go and find the answer. And then I get the self-efficacy um, boost, right? That I could find the answer for myself. So yeah, I think there's 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 that implication of, of this uh, culture that we're in right now, which is just not helping us learn and grow. Yeah, I know that in previous consulting and employment positions, if I put out an out of office matches like that, my boss would have been so offended. Who am I? You want me to send another? So, you know, I think there's this cultural aspect to it and defining the parameters about when we need something. And uh, even beyond just individual tasks or questions, just culturally, right? Especially if you want people to not be burned out, which I know is a big problem leading to a lot of resignations. That and the fact that, and I know you and I are on the same page with, with duplication of work. We can't find things. We're used to doing it. We don't get a response immediately. All right, I'll just create something. In fact, Asana had put out an anatomy of work study last April, I believe. And it was something like 31% of the time, American workers, and it varied by country, uh, were working on low value activities, scheduling, uh, trying to find documents, um, you know, duplicating work, 
Um, your experience been similar? Absolutely. And I think it's, I like to think of um, this as a tension that people nowadays have been facing, which is between important work. So the things that actually move our personal and professional goals forward which often requires, you know, deep work, deep thinking, uninterrupted work, really delving into that project. It's kind of like Carl Newport's deep work book as well, versus all this admin urgent things that are not so important that are like small things, someone requests something, or like we want to get our email uh, to zero and so forth, which maybe help us, you know, feel a little bit of a sense of relief that we crossed off some small task on our to-do list. Um, but it doesn't really help us to, to advance the big blocks, the, our bigger goals, because um, we keep pushing them aside for whenever we will have more time. But yes, that's also kind of a bias that we won't have more time in the future. We're just going to be as busy as we are now. Um, you mentioned deep work, but um, also in the conversations before this, um, you were writing about collaborative deep work. Tell me a little bit about that. I, I find that really interesting. Yeah, so I think it's it kind of started over the past two years, or at least since we started to work more from home because of the pandemic, um, started to use deep work time um, collectively sort of thing. So I've started to schedule two hours or an hour with another colleague of mine or a collaborator at the same time, blocking in our calendar and just like getting on Zoom and talking at the beginning of the, of the meeting, these are the things that I want to focus on in this hour. And the other person would say, these are the things that I want to focus in this hour. And then we would keep the video on, put the uh, mic off, um, a sort of a, you know, not like a big brother watching you, but just the idea that there's someone there next to you sort of working together. And we could work on the same project or we could work on our own project. And at the end of that hour or at the end of those two hours, we would kind of check in and be like, yeah, I've, I've managed to push some things forward or I've managed to achieve this. So it's the idea of deep work where you just like work uninterruptedly for a couple of hours, um, but taking it at the team level because, you know, time is so hard to manage as an individual. So making it a collective resource um, really helps to um, like a commitment device in a way, right? It really helps to get into the habit of working um, on the things that I really needed to get done. Yeah, I know that I think it was six months ago or so, Zoom announced that they created fairly low-cost hardware, and it'd be a separate screen that you really wouldn't use as you would a computer screen or an external monitor, um, but something, so to your point, it, not that your manager could watch you, although technically you could use it for that purpose, but more as if you were sitting next to someone in the same room, you're, you're going to have your own computers or pens or pencils or whiteboard or whatever, but you would occasionally look at that person. Yeah, of course. And, you know, with some some of my collaborators, we also put the video off just because it was more comfortable for them. But you just knew that that person was there. And it definitely is not meant to be about watching you, because I think that just takes away the trust and the comfort of actually working on the work that you want to do. Uh, but it was just like a sense of, I know I won't get as much done if I rely on my own self-control to be like, okay, for two hours, I'm not going to check the email. And I'm just going to focus on this project that I really want to get uh, deep into. And so getting someone else to be committed at the same time to be working on their own goals helped me to be like, okay, I am tempted to answer this email, but I'm not because I really want to work on this. And this person, I've uh, agreed with them that we're going to use this time for our own important work to get done. So it, it really helped. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like you're trying to infuse manners 
for lack of a better term. So if you and I are having a conversation at a coffee shop and I constantly pick up my phone, well, people do it, but it's rude. And I understand there are emergencies and all that, but I know Seinfeld, I'm a big fan of the show, was talking about with phones. Imagine if they were newspapers, magazines, and you were talking to someone and you were holding, uh-huh, 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 right? And you just put this barrier in between someone because you're not listening and focusing on the task. So I like this idea of, again, while respecting privacy, I'm almost bringing some of that into your workspace because if the monitors, I mean, even if we're on a Zoom call, but the video's off, I could be listening to you in quotes, but I'm checking email or I'm on my phone or whatever. Yeah, and I think it, it's just, uh, <laughs> I love Seinfeld as well, by the way. And uh, I think it's just, it, it's easier, I guess, to cheat ourselves of our own time. But if it's someone else there, you kind of feel a little bit more accountable to mm. um, how you want to use your time. And it kind of helps you to value the time a little bit better because it's it's a social time with someone else. So, mm. Talk to me a little bit about more than now. I hadn't heard of it before you had mentioned it, but I, I, from what I do know, it seems really interesting. Yeah. So more than now is a behavioral consultancy company in, based in London. And their core mission is to improve the workplace one experiment at a time. Hmm. So their core mission is to to really understand um, and work with companies, not just in finding a solution, but just trying to also implement that solution using experimental tools um, to see if it actually works. So I've I've been... um, I've been working with them, kind of bringing in my research expertise on the future of work and well-being and working with the partners um, to uh, trial out some some of the ways to make work better. And we even tried this deep work idea called the Reset, actually, uh, with one of their partners and and found that it actually did help um, improve um, performance, well, self-reported performance and decrease burnout. So, yeah, I I really enjoy working with them. It's a bit of a... um, sort of my other side, right? So my academic side is where I work a lot alone and sometimes I have calls with my collaborators and then this is more of a way to immediately see the impact of my research by putting it out there and working within companies and, and trying to apply it. Yeah, I, <laughs> yeah, I like this notion of experiments because you know, we're still figuring this out. Say what you will about the previous however many decades or centuries of office-based work. But, you know, we had kind of figured out the norms, right? They they weren't ideal, right? There were problems, but, you know, you couldn't say, uh, for example, um, you know, so-and-so gets to work from home remotely, um, generally speaking. Um, If you were all in the same office, then in theory, there's a level playing field and you, you know, you didn't have proximity bias, for example. But now, you know, to the extent that we're probably not going back, um, although some companies want to do that. You know, how do you make things truly better? Um, it's not a simple question, and it may be different for companies and cultures and industries and um, countries. Yes, absolutely. I think that's one of the challenges nowadays, kind of how do you make sure that you take into account the diversity of work practices, but also preferences and situations and cultures and different... It's, it's just, it's not one solution fits all anymore. And I think it was just as relevant before the pandemic before the pandemic as it is now to really not just implement a new policy or a new way of working without really testing it is it what we expect it to be 
or or not before you put it out at scale. So, so the idea of the experiment and, and a lot of the idea for more than now is, you know, you impact so many lives when you put out a new policy in an organization. So you might as well test it with an experiment to see if it has the effect that you expect it to have. So evaluate it in, in a robust way and also see what could be the downsides before you roll it out to everybody. Um, so it's interesting that in the workplace, we don't really do this, right? Like we don't use experiments to really test something out. We're just like, oh, this might work. Let's just roll it out to everybody. Um, oh, we could talk for hours about this. I remember my, my days in HR where some companies did the more frequency, but one company in particular did an annual survey. By the time they collated all the results, more time had passed. And then you'd get the results as a manager. So you could be looking at an 18-month lag. And all right, pharmaceutical companies tend to be fairly stable, all things being equal. But um, yeah, and I do know actually at Noah Bouze was on my podcast a couple of um, episodes ago talking about real-time uh, daily employee surveys to try to nip trends in the bud in such a way that you're not looking back six months and go and say, oh, shoot, we've been doing this wrong the whole time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, it's also a way of saving, saving costs in a way, right? Like if you're doing it right, you can, you can really save some of the costs involved in rolling out a policy that, that costs you more money than actually um, saves you. So, yeah. yeah. Talk to me a little bit about pre-mortems. I'm familiar with the concept, although I've never done one, but I, I, I love the concept behind it. Yeah, so it's very similar like um, to postmortem. Like when we do a project, we tend to evaluate how it went, what went well, what kind of learnings can we take from it moving forward in another project. But you can think about the same concept before you start a project or at the beginning of a project, a pre-mortem, where you think through the things that could go wrong and create contingency plans for that and really kind of try to predict the things that could go wrong and the things that you could implement to avoid those things going wrong. So it, it's sort of a project evaluation before you even start the project. I'm amazed that of all the projects I've ever worked on, we never did anyone. And many times we wouldn't even do a postmortem because we wanted to get the hell out of there because the consulting money had run up and run out or whatever. But um, yeah, it just seems like you know a lot of what you say is so intuitive. And I just wonder why um, relatively few organizations at this point do those types of things. Maybe it's because they're still figuring it out, but really good stuff. Um, I'll get you out of here on this, Laura. What book are you currently reading? <laughs> um, I tend to read a couple of books at the same time, but right now I've really got into uh, 4,000 Weeks, Time and How to Use It by Oliver Berkman. He's just making amazing points about our approach to time and time management nowadays and, and how we get that relationship with our time wrong, where we think that the more we try to control it, the better it's going to be, but it's actually the other way around. That The more we try to control it, the more it gets out of our hands. Good stuff, Laura. Thanks so much for being on. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Remember that these episodes drop every Tuesday. However, if you'd like early access to them, you're in luck. I've launched a Patreon page for this podcast at, wait for it, patreon.com forward slash Phil Simon. I've set up a number of different tiers, including early access and podcast sponsorships. Thanks for listening to Conversations About Collaboration. If you like what you heard, then how can you not? Please download, like, and or subscribe. See you next time.
Remember that these episodes drop every Tuesday. However, if you'd like early access to them, you're in luck. I've launched a Patreon page for this podcast at, wait for it, patreon.com forward slash Phil Simon. I've set up a number of different tiers, including early access and podcast sponsorships. Thanks for listening to Conversations About Collaboration. If you like what you heard, then how can you not? Please download, like, and or subscribe. See you next time.